Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, welcoming back one of our favorite guests, uh, David French. Uh, David, thanks for coming back. By the way, this episode should have a trigger warning for certain people. Right? <laughs> oh, my. Well, it ought to have a trigger. People, I just want to warn people, there may be opinions that you will hear on this podcast that you disagree with, but we never promised you a safe space. Is that right, uh, David? I mean, so. That's right. That's right. And thanks for having me back, Charlie. I really appreciate it. Well, appreciate it. Well, I want to start off with something uh, kind of... Uh, Kind of surprising yesterday, the, the, the president of the United States uh, had this to say about communism. Communism is a failed system, universally failed system. And uh, I don't see socialism as a very useful substitute, but that's another story. Okay, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I was reliably assured that this was a president who would never break bad on communism and that if he became president, we would live in a socialist America. So I'm I am very confused, David. <laughs> well, you know, uh, people keep forgetting that he ran and won the Democratic primary by running against socialism uh, and running against the socialist candidate. Um, yeah, I think I thought that aside was really interesting. I mean, you know, condemning communism is something that's only going to anger about, you know, 19 people on Twitter. Um, but when throwing in that aside about socialism, which, you know, I don't know if it's on script or off script or whatever, uh, was was kind of interesting. And I was glad to see it, um, along with, you know, some of the other things he said, like trying to restore uh, internet to Cuba, uh, to Cubans. Yeah. I thought that was good, but, um, yeah, that was a great ringing condemnation of, of communism with an intriguing and interesting aside about socialism that, you know, might have some ripple effects. We'll see. Well, there, uh, I want to talk to you with you, uh, today about a number of things, including, uh, all of the things we're learning about the possibility of a coup before the, the inauguration. I also want right. to talk about this, this ongoing, very frustrating debate about critical race theory. Uh, but I wanted to start off with, with, with um, a piece that you wrote for the dispatch, which, as I mentioned before we started the podcast, I, I've really been thinking a lot about, and there's been a lot written about, uh, the polarization and the tribalization of our politics, why it has become so shrill and so extreme. And you got a very interesting take talking about it as perhaps a product of the loss of friendship, loneliness, right. but particularly among men, that men just don't have friends anymore. So connect the dots for us here. Yeah. How, so this how does how does not having friends <laughs> lead to Twitter screeds? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So the data is pretty shocking. Between 1990 and 2021, the percentage of men with no close friends went from 3%, you know, very small percentage to 15%. The percentage of people with a great deal of close friends went from 40 all the way down to 15. And and my my theory, and also informed by Damon Linker as well, is that look, people need relationship. Okay, it, it's these are not optional. Relationship and community are not sort of optional things. Now there are some people who are loners. Let's you know all the loners out there. We see you. <laughs> we know you're out there. But Me. most of us, we need relationship, and. If it is not arising organically out of your life, in other words, if you're in in your day-to-day -day life, these relationships that sustain you, they they sort of help you get through tough times, they start, they they really provide that source of joy and stability. 
then we start to look for it in other ways, um, including online with these, you know, what what um, affinity relationships or faction relationships where you're finding people of common interest. Now, that's all well and good, but those kinds of relationships turn out to be more fragile. So if you're in a factional relationship, what is it that binds you? What's, what is it that bonds you? It's your common dedication to the cause. And so there's no tolerance for disagreement because that, that faction is the basis of the friendship. Um, you know, I, I wrote that faction friendships are, are, can be even dangerous. They provide uh, community and a sense of purpose but a lot of the times that purpose is false and the friendship itself is fra- is fragile. They depend on an extraordinary degree of agreement and conformity. And Charlie, I know you and I have experienced this in mm-hmm. spades. It's, oh, yeah. you, you can have had years of relationship um, working with somebody in politics or activism. And then it's over in a blink of a tweet because why the foundation of the friendship wasn't actually mutual love and respect is mutual commitment to the same cause. And when you have that, that is where the sort of extremism, because that's the the basis of the friendship is the commitment to the cause, a conspiracy theory that sort of shared um, commitment to even sort of deeper and, and more radical beliefs um, become, they flourish in that atmosphere. And, 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 you know, one of the things I said is, you just can't fact check, plead, or argue. That's the reason why you can't fact check, plead, or argue a person out of a conspiracy, because what you're actually doing is trying to fact check, plead, or argue them out of their community. Yeah, this is this this is the key point, is that is that a lot of these arguments are about belonging. Um, and if you don't have any real friends, this is the world you live in, and you're not going to say something or believe something if it means you're going to be excommunicated for most of us. Right. So you, you mentioned, I mean, I'm, look, I'm looking at your piece right now, talking about you know friendships built up through years of engagement in politics uh, and activism vanished in the blink of a tweet. You're not with us, th- then we're not with you. Well, of course, it turns out those were not real friendships. And we, we, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, that's that that is the key thing, because you contrast that with robust family relationships and deep friendships that aren't so fragile. And you tell a story about uh, one of your acquaintances, friends named Leo, um, yeah. that you use you use as, as sort of the, the the counterpoint to this. So this is somebody. So tell me about Leo. And, yeah, and, so, and, and and why you were actual friends who were able to disagree as opposed to the faction friends. Friend. Yeah. So, so I, when I landed in Iraq at Ford operating base Caldwell in uh, November of 07, um, my uh, Leo, uh, Captain Leo Broadhead was sitting there um, waiting for me. And I was the only reservist in an active duty unit. So already I'm sort of isolated because they're suspicious of me. There's, you know, some of the active duty folks don't necessarily think that the reservists are uh, up to par. <laughs> And then mm-hmm. I was the lawyer. I was the JAG officer in a combat arms unit. And so they're going to look at you all the more suspicious because of that. And But Leo did not did not look at me in that way. Hmm. He immediately, he knew I was going to be an outsider. He knew I was going to be somewhat isolated, at least for a while. So uh, he when he did the room assignments um, in our officer's quarters, he assigned me to be his roommate and immediately open, immediately open. Um, you know, established a connection. And we are about as different as you can be. I'm a Southern 
evangelical conservative. He is a Mexican-American immigrant, and he calls himself former Catholic, former ag, uh, former Mormon agnostic. <laughs> he, at the time, especially, I was a partisan Republican trying to get Mitt Romney. You know, I was working, my, my wife was actually on the campaign bus with the Romneys at that time. <laughs> and, and I was, um, and, and, you know, I was deployed, so I wasn't doing anything political, but I wanted Romney to win. He was all, all in for Barack Obama. But, you know, it was, we formed a relationship around mutual respect, a shared, very, very difficult experience. And the differences that we had weren't a cause of friction, actually, in the relationship. They're actually a cause of, you know, some, they actually made it better. I mean, we had conversations, we disagreed, we still had mutual respect. And, you know, when, when he, when I redeployed, I used my law school connections to get him a prime ticket at Obama's inaugural. And as I wrote, nice. he rewarded me uh, for getting him that ticket to the inaugural with a cell phone, pic, uh, cell phone video, primitive early cell phone video <laughs> of the Bush uh, helicopter flying away from the White House while he's saying, na 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 hey, hey, goodbye, which, and then sent it to me. And I would have expected nothing less. Um, but this was also a guy who would go to church with me every week because, um, you know, one of the things that's really interesting if you're in a deployed environment, um, it's it's almost a just a rule that you just don't do stuff by yourself, that you're mm-hmm. always going to be with somebody. And he would go to chapel with me every week, even though he, he you know, he was a deep, deep skeptic because, you know, we just did stuff together. And, and you th- compare that, you compare that to the kind of culture you have now where, you know, I, you know, I used to like you, David, but this essay you wrote, yeah, or not. I used to think you were a decent person until I saw your Twitter thread is the contrast could not be more dramatic but if your friendships are based on that faction, then you know you hang by a thread. Everybody hangs by a thread because your presence in your community is going to depend on your ability to toe that line, even if you have misgivings, even if you're not so sure, even if people are going maybe in a direction you're uncomfortable with, as opposed to the comfort and the security of, hey, I appreciate you because you know, just for who you are, even if you change, you know, even if you disagree. And that's, yeah, there's, then there's assumption of goodwill there, right? I mean, as opposed to this culture of, I disagree with you, therefore you're a bad person. Um, You said something that I I didn't like, therefore I am going to cast you into darkness, cast you into outer darkness, and I'm never going to listen to you again. That's that's the social media world. That's the factional world as yeah. opposed to, hey, I know this guy. You know, I, I, I kind of know him. I know his family and all his mind works. And, and you know, we can, we, we can tolerate that. And I think people understand that, that difference. Although it is easy to forget that your colleagues are not necessarily your friends. And by God, the people uh, <laughs> that you're following on Twitter are not your friends. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> well, you know, but the thing is the that shared online intensity that can exist, that sort of um sense of shared purpose, it can create a facsimile of friendship. Right. It'll it feel it like can create it. a yeah, it can create a, a kind of it's a, a counterfeit version and that while it's working, you know, while you're rowing all in the same direction, you know, and you're talking about your, maybe you're having side conversations about your family and side conversations about your career and your job. And, 
you me, me, you know, might even share, like I had a bad health scare or, you know, something like that, that friends do, but what's hovering it over it all is that shared commitment to the shared point of view period. Whereas say in a, a friendship like I had with, with Leo and have with Leo, um, you know, we're, we recognize we are people of good faith who are trying our best <laughs> and, and in a complicated world, we don't have to agree, you know, um, I disagreed profoundly with Barack Obama, but to sit there and say, well, only bad people support Barack Obama is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. I supported Mitt Romney in the 08 and 2012. And, but to say that only good people supported Mitt Romney is utterly absurd. And so, you know, this kind of existential humility that you w- should walk through life with that allows you to say, you know what, people disagree with me and they might be right. <laughs> they might be right. And so, the mere fact of disagreement with me does not mean that you're a terrible person. That is antithetical to the spirit of modern, endless, constant, partisan combat that you see online. Well, also, it, it depends on whether or not you value the relationship. So if you're online right. with somebody and they say something you disagree with, if you don't have a real relationship with them, you can flame them. You can say, you know, you can you can be insulting. Whereas if you are looking someone in the eye or have known someone for some time, you, you, you will, um, you know, you're going to, you, you will hesitate. I mean, you will think about it, you know, and you will, you know, consider perhaps they're right. You know, I thought about this, about how, um, you know, I, I've, you know, obviously, you know, being a conservative on MSNBC can be, can be awkward, but when you get to know someone and develop, I think you and I may have just talked about this at one point, you know, develop sort of an assumption of goodwill Every once yeah. in a while, there will be something that I will say to someone who will disagree with me fundamentally. And I can just sort of see in their eyes, they go, okay, I could flame you, but we know each other. And right. I kind of know that that I could interpret it in the most negative possible way, but you and I have talked about this and I know your values and therefore, and we're kind of friends. So um, I'm not going to do that. We're, we're going to have a civil conversation, but that requires that, that one-on-one contact. I don't know that you can develop that online or remotely. Very hard. So has it become, it feels like it's gotten worse lately. And I wonder how the pandemic has played into this. Those numbers that you mentioned about friendship, how much of that is, you know, is is the pandemic and how much of it is just other cultural social changes? Well, I I mean, I think the pandemic plays a part. I mean, you you know, it's going to be a while before we learn the full effects of the pandemic on our, on, on each of us, you know, that there's going to be a lot of study. There's going to be a lot of trauma that people have endured that it's going to impact them in years going forward. I mean, we have had more than 600,000 people die hundreds and hundreds of thousands, probably millions with very serious long-term illness, uh, combined with, you know, job losses combined with the, all of the upheaval of that year. So we're going to be figuring out the effect on, on all of us for, for a long time. But one of the things I think that is true is that, especially when it comes to men, there are just major significant cultural changes that have meant that sort of that organic shared experience form of male friendship that comes out of um, male spaces, they're ju- the, these male spaces are just diminishing and narrowing. Okay, and why so, is that happening? What we, and and what, what are the spaces you're talking about? Yeah. So, for example... Um, it used to be that we had a much larger relative to the population and much more male military. 
So, you know, you look at the Cold War era military with a much smaller American population. It was a much larger military with much more dramatic um, male to female disparities. So you had, you know, in any given year, say two million men <laughs> going through this kind of classic bonding experience. You know, that n thankfully we weren't actually in a shooting war with the Soviet Union, but there were a lot of very tense, tense times. And even in the best and most peaceful of times, the military is a much more kind of uh, at, at difficult experience in most civilian work. So that bonds people together. Um, we've had, you know, the Putnam bowling alone thesis that's been, mm -hmm. we've talked about for a long time where things like sports leagues are diminishing, you know, he's the, the, the bowling leagues, for example, diminishing also, you know, honestly, workspaces are much more gender diverse than they were in the kinds of workspaces that the very physical work that was almost exclusively male, a lot of that is, is going away. Um, so workplace was more, was proportionally more physical and more male. So a lot of these changes, you know, a lot of these are positive changes. I wrote in the piece, you don't want to be facing foreign threats so serious that, that they require massed infantry and armor formations in Western mm -hmm. Europe. You know, we should be grateful that women have increased opportunities economically. Now, some of the other changes are not as great. Um, we want an economy that has decent opportunities for less skilled, less educated workers. And uh, we want people to feel community. And there's a certain way in which modern work with its, with this, you know, uh, that a lot of us in the quote unquote laptop class, we can do our work just as easily and alone in a room like I am now at my house uh, as we can in sort of some sort of sprawling office space. And so a lot of the nature of modern work itself leaves us more isolated. And so basically my, my theory is that, and, my, and what I argue is that all of that sort of natural organic, just by living, you make friends kind of reality <laughs> is beginning to change so that you have to introduce a lot more intentionality into, um, friend, you know, into making friends. And sometimes when you introduce intentionality into it, it also generates artificiality. <laughs> um, I, you know, one of the, th again, I, you know, in my piece, I talk about the struggle that people have when they're creating men's ministries. Um, because mm -hmm. a lot of churches for a long time have recognized that there's this real void in male friendships. And so they're trying to use church as a place where people can make friends, but it's so hard to do it. Like in this all right, we're here for a weekend retreat. We're going to make friends. You know, that kind of forced bonding doesn't really work. And so- Because male, it, fr ma male friendships are very different than female friendships, aren't they? I mean, it is harder for men to develop friendships, these kind of organic relationships that you're describing, isn't it? You know, I think, but, but, you know, because- why? It, you know, in, it's just speaking of generalities, so, you know, we know that not all men are the same and not all women are the same. So just with the understanding right. that we're speaking in generalities- I think part of it is that men develop friendships to a degree, a, to a pretty, to a degree different from a lot of women around shared experience, um, shared um, challenge, shared uh, sacrifice. So, for example, you know, the kinds of friendships you often get on a football team mm -hmm. when you've been through two-a-days together or, you know, the kind of friendship you build up like when I talked about with Leo on deployment um, and it's, there is a, there, and that's when I talk about these male spaces, like these sports leagues hmm. where you may go through a whole season and not, you know, really talk a whole lot about real stuff, 
but at the end of the season, you feel like, hey, I've got to, you know, we're friends, <laughs> you know, we're friends. So I think that that shared experience, that shared sacrifice or shared hardship is the kind of thing that really bonds men together. And, and, you know, I don't, this isn't new news here. I mean, part of the whole purpose, for example, of a boot camp isn't just to provide you with, you don't walk out of boot camp with all of the military skills that you need, but you do walk out of boot camp with a a experience of shared suffering and sacrifice and a sense of esprit de corps if it's done well and, and a sort of a mental reset if it's done well. But, um, yeah, it, so I do think there's a, and that, that's why with men, I think it's then very hard to replace that with a counterfeit of it or something where you, you're trying to do it in quickly and intensely, like here, look, here's a weekend retreat. We're going to all go whitewater rafting. And at the end of it, we're going to all be pals, (laughs) you know, that's, that's, you know, sometimes too fast, right? Or maybe you're super busy because you've got a young family or a busy career and then there's no follow-up. And so it's that organic, long-term, shared experience, shared um, hardship, I think, that really makes that bond. Well, I, I could spend all day talking with you about this particular subject, but let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with more from David French. And David, I want to talk to you about uh, critical race theory and the debate about critical race theory when we come back. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams or others like The Next Level Podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. We're back with our guest, David French. You know, we spent the first uh, half of the podcast talking about uh, friendship. Let's talk about one of the most frustrating debates that I've encountered in a long time. And I think you share the frustration, uh, the whole debate about critical race theory. And I know that you've had some actual one-on-one uh, debates with, with, with folks. If, if, I, if I understand your position correctly, which I think is pretty much my position, you know, critical race theory uh, is problematic. It's, it's illiberal, yeah. it's intolerant, uh, needs to be exposed. Uh, it is reductionist in terms of uh, racial identity. But right now there is this moral panic and this push to pass legislation around the country banning it. And that's a real problem. I mean, it's so interesting how conservatives who had talked for years about limited government and all of this now are all in on passing these bills and it's become kind of a wedge issue. So talk to me a little bit about the way this debate has been rolling out and your role in it. Yeah. And interestingly, it's going to connect with what we were just talking about (laughs) in in an interesting way. So critical race theory, I first encountered it 30 years ago. Um, Actually, August of 1991, I remember very vividly because that was my first beginning of my first semester of law school. And at my law school, uh, critical race theory, critical theory had overtaken the place. It had just overtaken it. I think five of my first six major professors were crit, what we called crits, critical legal theorists. And so I've been dealing off and on to greater and lesser degrees with critical theory for 30 years. Um, and in, I've been fighting the excesses of it for 30 years. So one of the early excesses, because everyone acts like, oh, this is brand new. This is never, yeah, yeah. you know, 
it just exploded onto the scene. No, it's been around for a long time. And one of the ways it exploded on the scene 30, 35 years ago was through university speech codes, because you you said something earlier, Mm -hmm. Charlie, about illiberate, you know, there are interesting diagnostic uses that critical race theory has. It has one of the ideas of critical race theory is that a racist system can be perpetuated even if no one perpetuating the system is actually racist. Um, and there we can go down that rabbit hole for a while, but um, which is very interesting and challenging to think through. But at the its sort of solutions phase is very illiberal. Um, it rejects the mm-hmm. classical liberal founding of America. It rejects principles of liberalism and it eject, rejects enlightenment rationalism. Um, it rejects all of that. And so when it gets power beyond sort of educating about an idea to change a governmental system, it often changes it in highly illiberal ways, like a university speech code that was designed to readjust the power balance on campus when it came to free speech. And I litigated against those for decades. Um, and so what, what has ended up happening though, is that, um, you know, for a lot of reasons, some of them involving the very nature of the internet itself, where if, you know, Disney or Cigna has a ridiculous PowerPoint, you can pop it up on Twitter and, and everyone can see it. Um, there's, you know, there's a, an absolute panic about it, just a, a panic about it that you've seen first emerging online and now moving into the offline world. And the solution to the problems of critical race theory, which I freely and completely acknowledge exist and not only acknowledge exist, have been fighting against those problems, problematic aspects for decades. The solution itself has problems that is being proposed. And the solution is this idea of, quote unquote, banning critical race theory at at as most modest. The goal is K through 12. When you get to some of the other legislative proposals, public K through 12, it includes public universities, if you talk about the Trump EO, that sort of executive order that launched Mm -hmm. all of this, it was banning critical race theory, even in private government contractors, so private corporations. And so the first thing that you have to understand when you're looking at a law or a proposal to quote unquote ban critical race theory is that when you read it, it doesn't ban critical race theory. Um, Hmm. Critical race theory is a complicated thing. It bans certain defined, quote unquote, concepts. And these concepts in many ways are what I would would call a caricature of critical race theory. And then they're drafted and even then drafted in a very sloppy way so that um, essentially in Tennessee, they passed a critical race theory ban that bans um, any, any attempt to sort of advocate against a creed. Hmm. So the critical race theory ban in Tennessee bans criticism of critical race theory, a creed. <laughs> so it's a lot of sloppiness, a lot of sloppiness. Well, it's, it's, it's hard to craft legislation, statutes, banning ideas, theories, concepts, Correct. isn't it? I mean, this is, this, is the, this is sort of the fundamental problem. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem. And this is something, you know, with the speech code, 30, from 30 years ago, some of the most brilliant minds in higher education tried to craft perfect speech environments based on these critical theory ideas, and they couldn't do it. It was an absolute mess. I mean, some of the language was almost laugh out loud ridiculous. And it's same, same with the case. There's a, there is a statute proposed in Kentucky that is banning 
formal and informal discussions of the concepts in schools, formal and informal discussions of the concepts. What, <laughs> you know, what? Well, you, you, you mentioned before, before we started the podcast about uh, this law in Tennessee, which is so broad and so badly written that it would ban what? It would, uh, it doesn't so, ban yeah. critical race theory itself. It bans a lot of other things like what? All right. So the, the Tennessee law restricts teaching that leads to, quote, division between or resentment of a race, sex, religion, creed, nonviolent political affiliation, social class, or class of people. So what? Again, how, you know, resentment of a creed, a creed, you know, there are lots of awful sure. creeds out there. Communism is a creed. Nazism is a creed. Um, so wait, I mean, are we supposed to now say uh, the state of Tennessee requires me to teach Nazism and communism in a way that is not calculated to lead to Va your value, resentment? Value, value free. So, yeah. I mean, but in, in some ways, these laws kind of reflect the politics of all of this. And and I know that you had an um, online podcast debate with with Christopher Rufo, who has become kind of the Pied Piper of all of this. And and he's been rather transparent in his uh, in his cynicism that he just wants people to I think he, he tweeted at one point that he wants people to pick up the newspaper and see something uh, that they don't like and immediately think, aha, that's critical race theory. So uh, very specifically um, fudging the, the boundaries, the borders, and the definition of what critical race theory is into uh, anything that makes them uncomfortable or they find offensive in the discussion of race. So if that's if that's how the debate is being launched, sort of inevitable then that the that the laws passed based on this kind of push would be this kind of uh, this mushy and indistinct. Yeah. And, and Charlie, heaven help you online if you say there's problems with these laws. Right. No. <laughs> see, this is, okay, this is what I really wanted to get to with you because we're in a very dangerous period right now. And I, and I, and I think I want to put this in sort of the larger context that if you try to make the case, okay, this is objectionable, but we don't want to use the state power to crush it, you get attacked from both sides. <laughs> I mean, you oh. get, there's a pincer movement. And I think this is the problem of small L liberalism and free expression is that, yes, you do have this troglodyte right, um, which is which has its uh, authoritarian streak, but there's also this intolerant left that's out there. And right now, I, I, I am really worried. I, I, to tell you the truth, David, uh, you know, and I was thinking about what I wanted to talk with you about, you know, there is this pincer movement from the right yeah. and the left. And I, I, I think that this is, Maybe it's not unique, and I'm not claiming that it is historically unique because it's not. I mean, you know, uh, liberalism and free expression have always been fragile. They've always been maybe a minority creed. But it does feel like we're at a, uh, in, at a moment of sort of maximum tension and danger because the consensus about, hey, free speech, you don't burn books, uh, we don't have state legislatures banning theories and concepts, that, that consensus seems to be eroded. Yeah, it really does. So what you have are you have illiberal right and illiberal left. They feed off each other. In many ways, they need each other and they fear each other. And so what ends up happening is if they both have very similar views of state power. So, for example, I, I talked about how critical race theory, many critical race theories reject the classical liberal founding of America. 
they reject enlightenment rationalism. Well, you know who else does? You know who else does are the post-liberal right. They have written screeds against enlightenment rationalism, and they've written screeds against classical liberalism. And and so these are some of the combatants locked against each other, and they both want to put all of the power in the state to enact their vision. So you can begin to see how these stakes just escalate and escalate and escalate because they reject, in many ways, individual liberty. They reject the marketplace of ideas. They w- reject sort of these classical liberal principles of the founding. And so they, but they really embrace state power. And if they both embrace state power, and they're both they're they although they have the same view of state power, they have diametrical opposite views of each other. Then you begin to see why all of this gets so intense because there is no space for dissent in these worldviews. So the dissenters are treated like people who violate speech codes. You know, on the far left, dissenters are treated like those who violated speech codes in college campuses. On the far right, dissenters, you know, they try to hound dissenters out of the the, the marketplace of ideas. They try to hound uh, dissenters out of workplaces. I mean, cancel culture is alive and well on the right. And these two sides feed off each other. So if you sit there and you say, wait a minute, I not, you know, not only do I oppose critical race theory, but I also don't think that we need to go post-liberal in our attitudes on the right to oppose it, that we have the tools within our classical liberal structure to deal with this better curriculum at the local level, for example, get involved locally for better curriculum. And when there are excesses of CRT, then you file a civil rights lawsuit, which protects civil rights laws, protect people both, you know, white, black, Asian, Hispanic. They protect everybody of any race in that you have the classical liberal tools to deal with this unless you're stampeding to illiberalism. An awful lot of people on the far right are going to not, I'm not just saying disagree with you. No, no. They're going to try to destroy you. They're going to try to end your career. Yeah. This is, this is really, uh, this is the problem. I'm going to talk about this book thing because I think this relates into it. Um, the American Booksellers Association, I'm sure you follow this story. Okay. These are, I mean, these are people who I just want to emphasize, they sell books. This is what they do. So uh, one of the books they were trying to sell, well, I'll get to it in a moment. They put out this statement. Uh, the other day, an anti-trans book was included in our July mailing to members. This is a serious, violent, violent incident <laughs> that goes against ABA's uh, ends policies, values, and everything we believe and support. It is inexcusable. We apologize to our trans members and the trans community for this terrible incident and the pain we caused them. Okay, so this serious, violent incident was sending out a copy of a book, okay? The book is Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters by Abigail Schreier, which again is controversial, but it is a book. And here you have the booksellers um, saying, we really apologize for selling this book because it's violence. I mean, Objectively speaking, when the people who sell books cannot make a distinction between books and acts of violence, we are in a dangerous place. And what is interesting is watching all of the pressure to suppress this book, um, with which you don't have to agree, but it's not how you feel about transgenderism. It's whether you can even talk about it. I mean, Target has removed the book. There's a campaign at at Amazon, a big petition where hundreds of employees have demanded that Amazon starts, uh, you know, stop selling it. The ACLU, 
You want to talk about how small the tribe is now? The ACLU, one of the top officials, a guy named Chase, is it Strangio? Strangio? Uh, he's the deputy director for transgender justice, tweeted, this book is a dangerous polemic. Uh, we have to fight these ideas which are leading to the criminalization of trans life. And then he said, stopping the circulation of this book and these ideas is 100% a hill I will die on. This is the ACLU. <laughs> and then there's a professor of English in California who went further tweeting, I do encourage followers to steal Abigail Schreier's book and burn it on a pyre. Okay, so it's like, seriously, people, have we been through the whole book burning thing? And um, and, and yet he, here we're at. Uh, the, do you have this this massive campaign that if there are ideas expressed in this book that you, you need to put on sackcloth and ashes and go through the performative wokeness of saying, you know, this is a terrible thing to do. And I, I, I got to say that this is uh, this this does strike me as one of those moments where liberalism is very much under siege. Oh, it's absolutely under siege. And and let's connect it to the beginning of our conversation. Why is it that you see such large numbers of people online jumping all in unison onto an issue? And almost it's almost as if they're competing with each other in the in their vit, in the level of vitriol that they can or the the amount of fury that they can vent. I think a lot of this is what you're looking at is, is the product of factional relationships. And what you're looking at is the, this is the end result in many ways of the, these very personal forces that we talked about before. This is where people are finding community. They're finding community and shared animosity shared and they're finding animosity. community and sort of yeah. in that shared animosity against, you know, um, <laughs> Whether whether the object is is latched onto an idea or the object is latched onto a person, um, that shared animosity creates a powerful social force, in which you it is very important for you to signal quite clearly where you stand, uh, even though as we as we both know that an enormous amount of attention paid to a book does what to the book <laughs> it enhances its reach and its sales. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, that, that's, this is going to back, this will backfire unless of course they, they managed to get it taken off all of the shelves. I, I, I guess the, here's the thing. It's, it's not just that you, you, uh, you know, declare your, your conscience by saying this book triggers me, just looking at this book triggers right. me, but you must also be triggered, um, uh, or, or else you're a terrible person. I mean, it's it's the demand that you shared the the triggered reaction and that you act on it to prevent anyone else from being exposed to it. And this is like I these are the kinds of assumptions that I think you and I grew up with, which is that okay, if you don't like a book, don't read it, don't buy it, or refute its arguments. You don't burn it, and right. that consensus is. It is badly, uh, you know, eroding, if not gone now on both the right and the left that we've been talking about. But yeah. when you see it coming from the booksellers, and by the way, this whole American booksellers <laughs> thing, you know, they're responding to the bookstores themselves. All of the members, the bookstores, these are the people, these are the people that walk around going, I read banned books all the freaking time, right? right? This is, they have the big bu buttons on all of that. They're the ones demanding, how dare you even send this to us? How dare you expose yeah, me to this book? It's a book. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really it's really amazing. We have a law of free speech in this country and it's supported by a culture of free speech. And right now the law of free speech is pretty solid. Yeah. In other words, if you if your your ability to protect yourself 
uh, from state censorship is basically unparalleled in American history. You, we have um, your protections against state, the state trying to, an arm of the government trying to shut you down. Your protections from that are unparalleled, but we're losing our culture of free yeah. speech. And so you have to protect both. You can't, you know, you, it, you, you absolutely protect the First Amendment. You don't destroy the First Amendment to save free speech like some people in the post-liberal right want to do. And they don't actually want to save free speech. They just want to save the speech they like. They don't want to, they don't have a particular interest in free speech. Um, but you don't destroy the First Amendment to, quote unquote, save free speech. You preserve the First Amendment and then you try to preserve a culture of free speech that sustains the First Amendment. And, and it's getting harder, Charlie. It's getting harder uh, because everyone wants to turn. They not only want to see their opponents silenced. They want to turn to government to try to help make that happen. No, exactly. And um, this, I, I want to move on to, to a related topic because somehow this is like so, – somehow I am connecting the dots here between the formal protections in the law versus the cultural erosion. And which brings me to what we're learning about the possibility of a coup and the role of the military. Uh, you know, again, the system actually worked. Um, we, we did not overturn the government. Uh, there was a transfer of power. It was not a peaceful transfer of power. But I just want to get your thoughts as somebody who's been in the military. You know, what we are learning over the last, um, you know, 48, uh, 72 hours about how worried top military officials were, including uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, about whether or not Donald Trump was going to try to stage a military coup. I mean, this is a remarkable story. You know, when it was happening, I was concerned, but now it seems that what we're learning is that it was worse than we, we thought. Uh, your take on this. Yeah. So, you know, I see a lot. I've saw a lot of people online kind of mocking this story like, oh, Millie, give me a break. How could anyone mock it after January 6th yeah. is one thing. And the second thing is all of the people that were mocking it were not as close to Trump as Millie was. <laughs> you know, here is here's a guy who is um, appointed by Trump worked under Trump, has seen Trump up close and in person in his decision-making process, is familiar with Trump's character, and he's worried about a coup. Well, you know what? Then I realize as, as, as alarmed as I was in the, you know, November, December, January, I feel like somehow I might have been not alarmed yeah, enough. Exactly. That's, that's, <laughs> what, that's what Tim Miller and I were saying that, to each other. It turned out to be way worse than we thought, and we were being accused of Trump derangement syndrome at the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wrote I was writing in December like as I was wa looking at that escalating Christian nationalism rhetoric that there are people are going to act on this. Mm -hmm. There are people who are going to act on this. And, you know, people mock you. Are you kidding me? And then January 6th happens. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things that we've learned is that in a lot of ways, at some point, at some point, you can make the best system in the world with the most checks and balances in the world. But at some point, the system is going to depend on people. Just like, you know, in Georgia, the secretary of state in Georgia, he, he, the system gave him the power to say no to the president, right? But it took his own courage and fortitude to then also say no to the president. And we had that right. in a number of circumstances in this whole election challenge was it came down to individual people 
And they were given, thankfully, by our laws, the power to resist the president. They had the ability to, but did they have the fortitude? And that's the thing that's became very clear to me in reading the Millie, um, reading this, the account by Millie and how they were planning to do a series of resignations. Because at the end of the day, the, the system was, gonna de- was going to depend on people who had the fortitude to resist an unlawful order. You know, it was going to depend I, on that. I, I, I heard a, um, an interview yesterday and I'm, I'm trying to, because I was listening to it on uh, Sirius XM. I didn't see the faces, but it was on television. Uh, General McCaffrey and Admiral uh, Stavridis were on talking about all of this. And they both made the point that under our system, the commander in chief has tremendous power and does have the power to order the military to do a, a, you know a lot of a lot of things um, and they said that ultimately what people need to understand is that you can't assume that you're always going to have the people who are going to be making the right decisions there the right. only real defense against a president abusing his power with the military is the electorate is the electorate has to put people who are honorable, who are restrained, who have respect for democratic values. And it was sort of like, uh, guys, it worked out this time, but do not count on the military to always resist the commander in chief's orders. And I thought that was a very powerful point um, when, you, yeah. when you realize that, in fact, you know, the president of the United States, if he issues orders, if it's not you know, clearly illegal, um, the odds are pretty strong that that order is going to be followed. And that unless the American people take their responsibility seriously, uh, the military is not going to be the ultimate defender of constitutional norms and democratic values. And I, I, I kind of stopped when I was walking back and forth, you know, listening to this. And I stopped. I said, wow, that's that is a powerful warning from these two guys who have been at the very, very top of the military hierarchy. Well, and and, you know, we also have to realize that. Trump wouldn't do it where he says he would just say coup. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the way he would do it is he would say there is disorder in the streets. Insurrection Act is invoked. Right. Um, then, you know, then I have discovered absolute evidence. And, you know, I have certain evidence that the election was stolen, that this is an illegitimate transfer of power. Therefore, you know, I'm going to block an unconstitutional seizure by, so all of the right buzzwords would be used. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that a great bulk of the house would go with it, that the great bulk of conservative media would go with it. Um, we know that this would occur because we, we already learned that the very idea that there were lines that there were lines that people would draw that they would not cross was obliterated. It was obliterated. Think how many Republicans continued the election election objections after the Capitol was stormed. No lines, no lines. And now it's become the litmus test, right? It's gotten worse. It it was, it was even after everything that happened, everything we've learned, the worst aspects of that lie have now become conventional wisdom in the Republican Party, which is extraordinary. You know, if you if you and I were talking in the morning after January 6th, saying, what will this do to the Republican Party? How will this change our politics? I'm not sure that I would have said, hey, you know what? By July, everybody's going to be totally cool with this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. I mean, where where you're, you, there is going to be a it is going to be harder to be a person on 
by July of 2021, it's going to be harder to be in the GOP and demanding an investigation of the January 6th takeover of the Capitol to stop the lawful transition of power. (laughs) It's going to be harder to oppose that publicly than it is to just either ignore it or continue to propagate the stop the steal lies. Um, it's extraordinary. And, you know, coming from, and, and Charlie, I know you're, you're in, uh, you know, a different part of red America than I am. I wonder if this is the, what you're experiencing. So what I'm experiencing is that here in, in my neighborhood, when you do the, the New York times, um, what kind of bubble do you live Mm -hmm. in, put in your address, my neighborhood is 85% Republican. Mm -hmm. So I'm in a pretty deep red place. What I found is that there are fewer Trumpy folks now, but the people who are not Trumpy are checked out. Yeah. It's their it's their response to all of this with the GOP is to essentially not to say I'm not a Republican anymore. They'll they'll still vote Republican, but to say, I don't want to be a part of this community. Like I'm I I'm out of this. I don't I was talking to a doctor, he said after January 6th, he just stopped looking at social media or cable news entirely and his life is a lot better, which I don't doubt at all. But what's happening is a lot of the much more sensible folks, they, when they brush up against this intensity and they brush up against this fury, it's like, you know, hitting a electrified fence, they just move away from it. And so what's happening is that's leaving the field to a cohort and a subset of people who are increasingly radicalized maintaining all of that radicalization. And that's my experience here. So you have this big group of people who are good folks who aren't like that, but they're increasingly disengaged. And the folks who are really all in are increasingly radicalized. Right. They're, they're, they're all in, which means, I mean, sorry, that they, they have di- disengaged, but they'll still be supportive. I mean, that's, that's the, they'll still that's vote the, that's the problem. Yeah. I think because they they won't they won't push back against this they they won't object to to all of this and that that you know I'm just reading and I'm sorry to keep going back to this sort of thing but uh, you know reading histories of authoritarianism there there is that moment at which people just become numbed and that that's completely fine from the point of view of the people who are pushing the most extreme lines because that means that they have a monopoly on the debate. They get to set the terms of it and there won't be any resistance. And I think that that is the moment we're, we are at here. So on, yeah. on that happy note, David French, <laughs> hopefully we will have a beautiful weekend of being checked out. Yes, yes. Everybody needs time to check out. I, I think so. So, David, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We always appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday. We'll do this all over again.